Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number 14 of Hurricane Season 2019. Here along with meteorologist Luke Doris. Number 14. Not not at the end of the season yet, yeah. but we're, we're getting on that we're, back we're, half, we're aren't we? We're getting there. And, you know, interesting thing about uh, I was looking back at the old records of the hurricane seasons, and this beginning of October for South Florida is actually a quiet time. It's when we get to the second and third week of October that we have these anniversaries, the October hurricane landfalling anniversaries. So that's our hump is, is coming up. All right. <laughs> All right. We have, to get to, we have to get past that. Now, today on the podcast, we're going to talk to Matt Onderlindy, who uh, works in the technology and science branch of the National Hurricane Center. He's essentially one of the whiz kids behind the scenes that keeps the place going and comes up with new graphics and new science and uh, all kinds of cool stuff. And also, Matt has a very cool website, his own project, that we all look at. It's called weathernerds.org. So all you weather nerds out there know about that. So we're going to talk to Matt about that project as well as his science and technology work at the NHC and the research that he's done uh, to get his uh, Ph.D. as well. We'll uh, talk to Matt here in just a moment. Uh, we're recording this on Monday, October 7th, 2017. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune into Local 10 or check the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 weather app for current information. Today's podcast is brought to you by the folks at Dade County Federal Credit Union, where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free this hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for a DCFCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at Dade County Federal Credit Union. All right, so going on in the tropics right now, uh, well, you just mentioned the incredible uh, typhoon near Saipan in the Pacific, a uh, super typhoon mm-hmm. now that went from a tropical storm to uh, 130 knots, which is 150 150 miles per hour, I think. Mm. Um, crazy. Weather Twitter, I was watching <laughs> it before I came into work, and the, I don't know if this is official or not, but they were saying it was up to 160 miles per hour. All right, so and, that would be 140 knots, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it went from, I don't remember the base speed, but in 18 hours mm-hmm. it went from some low, you know, somewhat trivial type storm to just an absolute monster. And you were talking about the eye size. Right. Tiny. Tiny, tiny, kind of a reminiscent of, of Wilma, actually. Yeah. In 2005 was this antsy tiny eye with this ultra-low pressure. The 882 millibars had a tiny, tiny eye but a big storm, where Charlie the year before had a tiny, tiny eye but a small storm. So it's uh, just more proof that these tropical storms, hurricanes, typhoons, come in all kinds of sizes and flavors and, and uh, dynamics. In the Atlantic right now, kind of a really unusual uh, forecast outlook, actually, technically, from the National Hurricane Center. Two non-tropical systems forecast that develop essentially simultaneously. Uh, one, very typically, the one out uh, east of Bermuda, there's a front out there, and along the front you have spinning air across the front and and you have enough warm water that uh, something maybe subtropical or conceivably tropical would eventually develop out of that happens all the time 
in the Atlantic. The other one, the one close to the East Coast, has got all these ingredients. And as a matter of fact, the pouring rain outside right now is one of the main ingredients uh, in in that thing, which is going to develop way north of South Florida. I mean, up off of the mid-Atlantic coast or something. But this tropical disturbance that we have going on here right now, that came out of the Caribbean, is going to be part of that. Yeah, these are always fun to try to dissect on television because <laughs> you're trying to explain what's happening, and there are three different ingredients in one of the two uh, systems that you're talking about. So it gets sloppy in a hurry, and you try to you know break it down as best you can. But the the one that you were talking about, that you know north of South Florida, that could be some you know gusty winds, high seas for the you know nor'eastery looking mm-hmm. for the northeast. We're going to be thankful for that one. It's bringing us the rain now, which we're lagging behind in South Florida. Um, so we're getting some showers over the next couple of days, but late this weekend it's going to push down a little fall front, and we get some uh, lower humidity. You won't feel much in the temperatures, but lower humidity is going to be nice thanks to that developing system. Yeah, assuming it uh, develops as strong sure. as, as the models uh, are indeed forecasting. So anyway, that's that's interesting. And in October we always watch the Caribbean because over Central America there's a general area of low pressure most of uh, most of the time in the fall, and uh, sometimes systems spin out of that in conjunction with a tropical wave that comes along or something. And as a matter of fact, the GFS model keeps wanting to uh, generate some kind of a system uh, coming out of there. And, uh, of course, last year, famously, Hurricane Michael came out of that same Central American gyre, it's called. And we'll, we uh, watch that uh, closely this time of year, but nothing is pending right now, and actually it's pretty clear over that area in Central America at the moment. The main thing about those systems is they come quick, and they intensify quickly, and then we talk about uh, rapid development, as we did with Hurricane Michael last year, and uh, rapid intensification, actually. And speaking of rapid intensification, that's a good time to bring in Dr. Matt Onderlindy from the National Hurricane Center. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Matt, you're an FSU guy, I see, and a University of Miami guy. Got your master's from FSU, as did I, and a Ph.D. from Miami. Uh, congratulations on all of yeah, that. On, uh, yeah, both sides of the rivalry. There. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, Matt, from your studies and the project you worked on, I'm seeing a strong bend in there toward predicting what's going to happen with hurricanes using statistical analysis, statistical methods, predicting when a hurricane is going to rapidly intensify is a key type of statistical prediction, for example. Where are we with being able to forecast that? It seems like these ultra-strong storms always go through at least one burst of rapid intensification, if not, not more than one. Is the science of predicting that in the beginning stages, or are we pretty far along? And how do you characterize it and how do you characterize doing it statistically versus doing it with you know brute force dynamical forecasting yeah i mean those are all great questions i I think i'd probably describe it as more still in its beginning stages as uh, the science goes um i think in terms of the dynamic models they they're coming along they're getting to high enough resolution now where we can actually explicitly forecast this with dynamical models sometimes but really, it's a timing problem more often than not where, okay, we know RI may happen at some point in the next day or two, but precisely when that begins or, or ends or whatever is a lot harder to say. And so that's where we kind of lean on statistics still, uh, where we'll combine models and do regression and those kinds of analysis to uh, 
try and get a better idea of when it happens. And we, we do gain a little bit of skill with that, although it's still pretty limited. So, so yeah, we got a ways to go on all right. One of the challenges we have, and I assume the forecasters at the National Hurricane Center do as well, is translating a statistical prediction to an actual forecast. Let's say you know the odds of a hurricane intensifying by 30 miles per hour is three or four times average. Does that mean you actually forecast it to get that strong? So, How do the statistical predictions and actual forecasts work together, or is that part of your work to figure that out? Right, it is, and uh, our specialists, you know, they're they're not making a forecast in a vacuum. They've they've got their dynamical guidance, their statistical guidance that's like ships, the ships model, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so th- they'll look at the RI schemes and say, well, they're saying there's a four times normal chance of this happening. We need to consider that and maybe hedge our bets in that direction. Or in some cases now, the last few years, they're actually explicitly forecasting RI, which is that's basically something that's only happened in the past few years and they get it right most of the time they do that so yeah but like you say they you know that's like trying to predict an eye roll replacement cycle sometimes because you know that it's likely to do that statistically speaking but when it's going to do it and then sometimes they really fool you like michael and they never do it so it's it's a combination of of uh, experience and statistics and the dynamical models i guess yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge. It's one of the, the leading areas of research in operational tropical meteorology, and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to work on, but it's also pretty frustrating. I would imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so, so, Matt, I don't think that most people, just most normal people out there that use the, the graphics from National Hurricane Center, understand that they are produced fundamentally involving statistics. The, the cone, the forecast cone being the most obvious example, the center of storms over the past five years that have stayed within a certain distance two-thirds of the time is uh, how the uh, size of the cone is determined. But you produced the software that generated the time of arrival graphics, and we use the earliest reasonable time, which we call the time to get ready, uh, on TV to tell people when they need to have their storm preps done because the high winds could arrive by that time. Tell us how that's calculated and how statistics come into play. Okay, sure. Um, well, Mark D. Maria, who's my boss in the TSB at the Hurricane Center, he deserves a lot of the credit for this, obviously, because he, it falls out of the wind speed probability model that he published, you know, quite a few years ago now. Right, I remember. And, and so you can use the tracks, uh, the, um, the realizations from that model to figure out the approximate time arrival of tropical storm force winds. And so we basically back those times out of the wind speed probability model. So that's where the statistics come in, is in that the wind probabilities. Right, and to produce that, and tell me, because my memory of talking to Mark and going through this some years ago may be faulty, but they produce like a thousand different possibilities, and to produce that, we're talking about the thing that kind of looks like a cone, but it's uh, wider than the cone because it takes into account the width of the storm, and uh, it has multiple colors in most uh, display, That's right. displays of that. So just for people to visualize in their mind what it is we're talking about. So uh, r- remind us how that's uh, generated. Is it a thousand different realizations of the storm? Yeah, yeah, so it is. It's a thousand, although that's a parameter we can change, but that's over the past several years it's been running at a thousand realizations. So it's a trade-off between runtime on the computer and, and um, the accuracy that you get out of it. And a thousand has been a pretty stable value for us that we if you go to 10,000, for example, you don't gain a whole lot by doing that. So, 
so we use a thousand realizations and then and it's it's actually fascinating to to plot them them all on one map it looks like a giant pile of spaghetti but it, it does give you a good feel for how the probabilities and the time variable falls out from that model. All right, and just to be clear, when we talk about a realization, we're talking about the possibilities, essentially, for how the storm might behave so that people can be aware, given scientific certainty and so forth, uh, what, the, what the possibilities with a given storm are. So, as I said, we use that graphic all the time, that, that uh, earliest reasonable time of arrival or the kind of when to get ready timing. And timing, uh, you know, all my time doing this, and uh, when we used to do research on it in the past, we found that that was the most important piece of information that we can get. But here's the thing about that that uh, timing graphic. is It's kind of ugly, just from a pure aesthetic standpoint. The lines are kind of wiggly. And you know what I've seen lately, and I'm sure it's that way for excellent scientific reasons but lately i've seen some people uh just kind of smooth it out just you know smooth out the lines and make those timing things just nice arcs instead of kind of wiggly lines does that make it and it's all about aesthetics right it's got nothing to do they're not trying to make some kind of better forecast does does that in any way diminish in your mind the uh, accuracy of it, or is there just enough play in those lines, essentially, that a smoother version, if it were all smoothed out, you know, would essentially give an accurate message? Well, it's funny that you bring this up, because I can't tell you how much trouble I had initially coding this up. That uh, that field, it, it is noisy, like you point out, and it was hard to get that into a stable graphic for our operations. It took a lot of work to do that. Um so there's kind of two audiences, right, that you're reaching for. So, so with our product, we do serve it out to the public on our website, but it's but it's really geared towards emergency managers who who are trying to finish evacuation decisions by that earliest reasonable arrival time. And then you have if you if you're showing it then to the public, I think it does make sense to smooth it more, like I've seen um, the Weather Channel and others do, where where it's a little bit easier to digest if you smooth those lines out. So I so I really just think it depends on who the audience is. We were talking about this before the podcast started. Dr. Anderlindy, he works on two of the most puzzling aspects of tropical meteorology. One, rapid intensification and trying to predict it. And then the other one, tornadoes and hurricanes. And during, I'm going back to Hurricane Irma. Uh, that was crazy. I worked uh, before landfall. I was on uh, in the overnight early morning hours. And there were tornado warnings left and right. And then even after landfall, there was many more. Uh, they were coming out nonstop. And other landfalling storms, though, very few. So uh, what was what's your research about, and is there a way to know which storms are likely to produce the most tornadoes? Yeah, it, to the extent at which we can model it somewhat accurately, there is. And so so it, it really comes down to the ingredients of tornadoes in tropical cyclones. They're different than they are, say, like in the Great Plains out in Oklahoma and Kansas. But they're not that different. It's more just like, things are compacted into the lower levels of the atmosphere but you still need the shear and the, the sense of the curvature of the wind with high it needs to be the same as it is in plains and and you still need the instability generally to get the thunderstorms you know in, in those outer bands so sometimes you get these hurricanes that actually have somewhat stable boundary layers especially like on their northeast side and in that case you tend to get fewer tornadoes but when when you get a landfall especially a larger storm with a big wind field and lots of shear inside the hurricane i'm not talking about the environmental shear that we 
we say weakens hurricanes. This is inside the hurricane. So when you have that shear, if you have the instability to go with it, you're likely to get the tornado. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we know you're involved with the National Hurricane Center graphics, but what else does the technology and science branch of the NHC do? Uh, well, so this time of year, it's a, it's a lot of just making sure operations are smooth, the forecasters have what they need, and the products are making it out to the web, et cetera. But, you know, once hurricane season starts to wind down, we can go back into science mode a little more and start working on our rapid intensification schemes. Um, this this past year, you probably noticed that we added the Central Pacific Hurricane Center to our website. Mm-hmm. Um, so so um, I think that's a lot nicer now to be able to just bounce across the basins and see the, see the products all in one uh, platform. So, so it's, uh, we do a little bit of technical work like that. We get to do science, especially um, when it comes to the RI stuff. That's what um, I've been working on a lot the last couple of years. So it's a balance. Um, right, right now we are down uh, a couple employees in our unit, and so that tends operations tends to take precedent. So there's been a little less time for science recently, but uh, hopefully we'll get more of it back again soon. And in your spare time, you build this really cool website for weather intense people or weather nerds called weathernerds.org. Now, when did you start that, and what made you decide to take on uh, a project like that? I wondered if you might ask, and so I actually look, I looked it up this morning to see when I registered it. Uh, it was 2012 when I actually registered it, and and initially it was more of just a, a pet project. Like I, I I really love making weather graphics, so I was like, oh, I want to automate some of these things and work on like making click soundings and cross sections and stuff. It's really been the past few years where I've been motivated enough, and and actually like especially after grad school, I had more time to uh, to make it into a more stable and usable website with, with some nice content, I think. It's a wonderful website. I love Weather Nerds. I, I'm there every day. Uh, you obviously do a lot of work with models, uh, both on your site and in your work. The question that we get asked more than anything else is, why is the European model the best on average? Uh, I'm sure you get asked that as well. Do you have an answer? Well, first of all, I'd say it's the best for track. When, when we look at intensity, it's it's a lot more mixed, and I would I'm not sure I would rate it in the top few models for intensity, but uh, but it's it's ensemble is a fantastic resource for for gauging the uncertainty in the track and where where the storm's most likely to go in that three to eight day time range, and so the reason I think it's the best is because their assimilation methods at the European Center are so good, and uh, that's kind of where I think they've pushed the envelope the most. In, in our field is their data simulation. So they're, they're able to initialize their model with the most accurate version of the current state of the atmosphere. So I think that's really where the accuracy comes from. Yeah, you were just mentioning the, the uh, European ensembles. I'm betting a lot of people go to your website to look at those. I know I certainly do, and they generally aren't available on other sites. Is that right? And uh, what is the most popular part of your website? Yeah, so... So those tend to be the most popular thing on my website is those ensemble plots. Um, and that's not surprising because, you know, these hurricanes are such huge events. Uh, they're very impactful. Um, but, but more and more people are using the satellite and the model data because of the, uh, the zoom feature where you can just kind of zoom in on any, anything you're interested in. And that's always been like the main thing I've cared about when, I, when creating the website was a way to zoom in and get more detail. It's just something I wanted that wasn't available when I originally started the website. 
And so the zoomability, I think people are starting to catch on. Uh, there's, you know, it's a very competitive market out there for for weather data now, but. Uh, well, what's more and more people are finding it. So. Well, what's great with yours is you have, like, the lines, but you can also track the individual ensemble, like, areas of low pressure and watch as they spread out over time, and uh, it's, it's just incredibly useful. So uh, very much appreciate it. Yeah, the, uh, the data, the underlying data for that is a little bit tricky to work with. I think that's part of the reason why it's not, not displayed widely on other websites. So speaking of ensembles, and, and to be clear – because we do have folks uh, listening to the podcast that are, are really weather-interested people as opposed to people like us that deal with this every day. We're talking about the kind of spaghetti model plots that are all from one model, but each line makes a slightly different assumption about the storm or the environment. And uh, by looking at them, we understand the range of possibilities for, for the future. So you get this kind of fan of spaghetti plots all from one model. That's, that's what the kind of ensembles we're talking about. But being the statistics guy that you are, is the spread in the ensemble tracks a good measure of the uncertainty in the forecast? Or uh, is there a, a correlation? I mean, we've always kind of assumed that, but I've... I don't think I've ever had, uh, you know, a real guru in statistics and models to ask that question, or do we know? Well, as much as I, I display these, and I, I love them, and uh, and I do understand them fairly well, I don't know if I'm the, the best person to ask that question. Um, I think generally, like you pointed out, we know that when there's more spread, there is more uncertainty, and it gets you get into mathematical complication in a hurry if you try to describe why that is. It's basically, you can get areas of the atmosphere where just very small differences lead to hugely different outcomes. You can almost imagine like a cork in the river, and then the river forks two directions. Well, if that cork is right in the center, it's very hard to to guess which fork it's going to take. Yeah, it's the old so, fork in the road problem. Yeah, Right. Th yeah. Those, those conditions happen all the time in the atmosphere. And so very, very minute differences in the initial conditions, the atmosphere will determine which fork you take and so that's that's kind of the uh, the concept and so so when the spread is more then yes we we generally know that there's more uncertainty in that forecast so we're talking a lot about the european but still the best models in a season typically are the various consensus models uh, that we do some kind of averaging of these different models uh, does that mean that we should pay the most attention to those and look less at the european or gfs for example well, right. So it's always perilous to, to go with one model all the time or most, even most of the time because there's, you just see cases where, where the GFS is more accurate and you see cases where the European is more accurate and, and others as well. So, so we have these consensus models at the Hurricane Center that, that they've been statistically derived to, to kind of figure out the strengths and weaknesses of each model and then apply corrections as much as possible. And those tend to be the most accurate for tracking intensity. Um, but and you can even do other simpler things like uh, like just averaging the models or averaging the models with different weights that are that are not necessarily so complicated. But but yes, the consensus is always a better approach. And, and you'll see this in the NHC forecast that they're they're fairly consistent from cycle to cycle. Where even if the models are jumping back and forth all around, you'll see those NHC forecasts more consistent. And part of that is because of the the uh, consensus technique. So what's coming next for your website, weathernerds.org? We saw you just added the Canadian ensembles. 
Uh, yeah, so I'm always I'm always working at it. I, I just over the weekend I added the uh, the simulated satellite data from the GFS. Uh, it's a nice new product where you can you know zoom in on hurricanes as they're developing and take a closer look and all that. Um, I've had I've had some requests to add some SFT overlays on uh, on the uh, satellite product. I'll probably try and do that. And then it's, there's just a laundry list of stuff that I, I want to do as as the site gets more popular. I need to be able to support more traffic, so so some of it is kind of mundane, just making sure I can keep up with the demand. But, but plenty of plenty of stuff to keep me busy. All right, I guess that's a good kind of problem for you. So you know, at the end of every season, the National Hurricane Center publishes their error statistics and also the error statistics of the major models and some minor models. Uh, and it's very competitive at the top of the heap, right? The, the lines are. Uh, very, very close to each other between the the good ensembles and the official uh, forecast. And sometimes, actually, the models are a little bit better, and quite often the official forecast from the Hurricane Center. Hurricane Specialist is a, a little bit better, but, but really they're close. Do you think, being a, a young guy in your time, do you think that anytime soon um, or eventually the computers will make the forecasts and humans will just do the communicating? Yeah, well, I think we're we're still a long way from that point. Um, the ability, I think we can we could use automation to get a lot of the way there, but we're we're just still a long ways away from from not having somebody analyze that forecast, think about it, you know, physically, meteorologically, and say, is does this make sense? And there's there's just other constraints that need to be considered. Like you, like I mentioned a minute ago, you don't want your forecast jumping left and right, back and forth, following models. Because you need to you need to maintain trust with the user, and when the user sees things jumping around, it's just it doesn't invoke trust. So, so there's there's a lot of value still being added by the human forecaster, and and uh, so I, I I love automating. I love I love that concept, but but it's it's a ways off. All right, all right, uh, Dr. Matt uh, Underlindy, thanks so much from the National Hurricane Center. We love your uh, website and and the work you do there, and uh, we appreciate everything that comes out of the National Hurricane Center. We couldn't exist uh, without both people like you and the hurricane forecasters and everybody else there. So, Matt, thanks uh, very much. Have a good day, and uh, thanks for being on the podcast. All right. Appreciate you having me. All right. All right. The website is weathernerds.org. As Luke said, we... We look at it all the time. When whenever there's a storm, we're looking at it, right? You bet, every time. Yeah. And uh, there's the, the thing is, there's nothing else out there like it. You no. know, it's it's in a league of its own when it comes to specific items such as those European ensembles. Fantastic. It is. It is fantastic. Uh, it was a year ago this week that Hurricane Michael hit Panama City and the surrounding Panhandle, including, of course, famously Mexico Beach. We'll talk more about that on the podcast coming up on Friday. Yes, we're doing another podcast this week on Friday. Now, there was a lot of talk about uh, Michael, and I know you were you were in the Panama City area in Mexico Beach, that people thought that was some kind of a freak, that, you know, strong hurricanes never came to that part of the panhandle. Do you, do you remember that discussion? Uh, yeah. You know, I didn't spend a lot of time talking to the people of the area about, you know, how did you not think that this would come? It, it did come up from time to time, and, and nobody thought. You know that there were uh, a strong hurricane that was threatening, and they'd been they'd been partially told that too. It seemed it was in the building codes, and right. and uh, there seemed to be some political influence. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess it wasn't at the forefront of their minds like it is maybe here in South Florida. Well, in the eastern part of the Panhandle, like you said, had a weaker building code than the western part of the Panhandle for crazy, irrational political reasons mm-hmm. that, that made no uh, no resemblance at all to meteorological uh, reasons. So uh, what's interesting is that 125 years ago this week, there was a Category 3 hurricane there, or at least it's rated as a Category 3 in the record book. But I went back and looked at the newspapers from uh, Pensacola, and they report the newspapers from Jacksonville talking about hurricane force winds in Jacksonville and in Pensacola and in Mobile. So apparently it was a giant hurricane Hmm. uh, that had a significant influence all across the panhandle. Now, there weren't many people in uh, Panama City at that time, but there were in Tallahassee. And it took a track almost exactly like Michael in across Panama City just to the west of Tallahassee, curving up through Georgia. Anyway, that's just kind of interesting. 1894, 125 years ago, this week. So, you know, <clears throat> they had studied a little history in that part of the world. They would realize that, indeed, uh, strong hurricanes do happen there. In any case, it was uh, it was something. OK, our next podcast is going to be this Friday. and We're going to be talking with Jeff Huffman. He's the chief meteorologist uh, at the University of Florida of UF Weather. And he's also director of something called FPREN. If you listen to public radio, you know about it. It's the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network. And Jeff has been instrumental in putting that together. And if you listen to South Florida, WLRN Radio, you uh, hear Jeff and you hear his team. And they also uh, handle South Carolina weather now out of the University of Florida. So we'll talk to uh, Jeff Huffman coming up on Friday. If you have something uh, that you want us to talk about, you can write to us at weatherpod at WPLG.com, weatherpod at WPLG.com. Today's podcast brought to you by the folks at Dade County Federal Credit Union, where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free this hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for a DCFCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at the Dade County Federal Credit Union. That's our podcast for today. We'll be back on Friday. Until then, I'm Brian Norcross, along with meteorologist Luke Doris at the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami. All right, have a good week, and uh, we'll talk to you again on Friday.